0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Skiff Meetings podcast, the podcast for curious event professionals embracing the future of business events. My name is Miguel Neves. I'm the editor in chief of Skiff Meetings. And in this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Panos Mutafis, co-founder and CEO of Zenas. Panos has 12 years of experience in ethical, artificial intelligence and holds a BSc in statistics from Athens University of Economics and Business in Greece and a PhD in computer science from the University of Houston. He's published articles on ethical facial analysis in the Harvard Business Review and the Journal of Marketing Research. He was the recipient of the best paper award by the IEEE Homeland Security Conference, biometrics, forensics, and physical security. In our conversation, we talk about the power of using video to study human behavior, the advantages of using AI for analyzing human behavior, why Zenus opted to not work with personal identifiable information and how the Zenus device and system works in the front-end and back-end. Finally, we talk about why events offer unique challenge by being temporary, often last-minute, and risk-averse by default. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation, and I invite you to check out the other episodes of the podcast. You can find them on our website or by subscribing through your favorite podcast service. Now, for a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. So, welcome to the podcast, Panos. Really pleasure to have you here. Panos Mutafis, hopefully I'm saying that correctly, co-founder and CEO
1: of Xenus AI. Thank you for having me, Miguel. I look forward
0: to the conversation. Sounds good. Um, Panos, take us through your journey. I mean, I know you're a PhD in computer science and you've worked in AI and a really fascinating um, kind of journey, but I'd love to hear it from your perspective and also how you found the events industry or the meetings industry
1: uh you know i'm i'm usually saying this is a conversation over a glass of whiskey and i don't have one with me <laughs> but the the short story is that i came to the united states and the university of houston to pursue my phd in computer science my undergrad was in applied math and statistics and the program i was working on had a very heavy emphasis on computer vision machine learning, AI. And my goal was to be a professor, but the University of Houston, Houston filed a patent uh, based on my work. Then the National Science Foundation, they have this program called Innovation Core. And what they're doing, they're trying to find the best researchers and technologies uh, in the country, and they give you some funding uh, to explore the com- commercialization potential of, of your technology. And the reason why they do that is to speed up the adoption of technology because this makes things better for everyone, the economy, people's lives, and so forth. And as part of this program, it was when uh, I took, you know, a detour uh, on my on my goals and plan path. And because we were analyzing faces with our technology, where do people go? They go at events, and that's how we said, you know, this is the best place to get started. Plus, the events industry has so many unique characteristics that we absolutely love. So it was a natural fit for us. That's fascinating. So it was really the
0: university and this program that pushed you from being a professor to, to starting your business.
1: Uh, kind of yes. I always had, you know, the entrepreneurship, uh, you know, thing inside of me. But it was this was the catalyst. I would say yes. Very
0: interesting. And how do you explain to your friends and family what you do? Is that something that comes naturally? I imagine not only events is interesting, but the the kind of AI and facial recognition could be an interesting conversation starter, but also lead to a few confusions, maybe?
1: (laughs) So so my friends get it, my family not so much. Uh, My family might be even scared of what we do, and it takes a lot of explaining uh, to help them understand why we do it, how we do it. And so forth. So on the highest level, what what we say is we are analyzing the human behavior by processing video. You know, that's the simplest way of putting it. It is not one hundred percent there, but you know we just study the human behavior in spaces to improve the experiences, to to understand uh, what they do, why they do it, what they like, what they don't like. That's you know again not entirely accurate, but this is the most. Um, easy way to communicate it. Now, when we're talking with friends, especially those working in tech or you know uh, in other organizations in corporate America or Europe, it is much easier to understand because most people have gone to a professional event. They have gone to a trade show. They have gone to an exhibition. They have gone to a conference. They understand the process. Oh, you have to pick up your badge oh, you have to go to a session, the session was good, it wasn't good, I had a conversation with an exhibitor, it was boring, maybe we shouldn't have these conversations, you know, anything like that, they get it. So when you explain that the technology is looking on the group level, uh, what what works to create better experiences, to design better spaces, That much. this is much easier for people to understand.
0: Interesting. So let's jump into the product, actually, because I, I think... I'd like to kind of take a few steps back and sort of tell mm-hmm. us where you started um, and take us through the evolutions of Zenus, because I mean, I've seen a few different versions of the product or you've told me about mm-hmm. a few different versions. So I'd love to kind of understand the evolution. So the initial theories and the initial thing where you started looking at at facial recognition. And I remember that the approach was slightly different. So if you could take us through that, I think it'd really help us understand how it's
1: evolved. You know, that's a conversation for another glass of whiskey, Miguel. <laughs> and it's very early this in the morning the, when we the whiskey podcast. <laughs> too, <right>? <laughs> <laughs> uh, checking aside, we did start from face recognition and we had a cloud based platform where you could send a video and you get back the uh, ID of the person that was identified in this video frame. And we were using the technology to streamline the check in process. And even though we had Without going into details, we had implemented a framework that was really state-of-the-art when it comes to protecting people's privacy and security. Uh, it had amazing safeguards built into it. The reality was that when we were trying to explain it with some uh, of our clients or prospective clients, it took quite a bit of explaining to do. The you know information security review process was pretty, pretty brutal, uh, sometimes for a not very big deal explaining it to registration companies and helping them integrate it in the right manner was also a challenge. Uh, the attendees loved it, and they still do, and it's still being used. Uh, but when it comes to the commercialization aspects, it was a little bit harder uh, to to implement and execute for all of these restrictions. Uh, was so- was this uh,
0: When you did the, the the kind of academic side, was this the focus? It was identifying
1: people through facial recognition? To, to a great extent, yes, but it wasn't the only focus. The lab where I was studying, uh, it, it had everything from from medical applications, uh, you know, predicting heart attacks so that we can prevent them and so forth. Uh, and a friend of mine on, on my PhD program, he was saying, when you go to a certain depth in the field, everything is fluid. So you develop one approach for one thing. You can implement it in many other applications as well. Because once you learn how to do something better, there's so many things you can do with it later on. That's really interesting. So yeah, that kind of evolution of the, of the
0: techniques. So you, you've, yeah, so you built facial recognition and you use that to integrate with registration companies to power that facial recognition check-in. So that was, correct me if I'm wrong, but at registration, you would upload an image of yourself and then as you walk into a venue, a camera would recognize you and a badge would come out of the badge printing machine, essentially.
1: That's exactly right. And it still works like that. Field Drive had a very, very successful deployment with IBC in Amsterdam, Rai, with about 50,000 people. And it was a massive, massive success. And that was, I think, in November, December of last year. So very, very recent. So that's something so that you're still very, doing, very doing with,
0: with, with partners and, and by yourself as well.
1: Uh, we do license the technology to select partners that we trust that they're going to deploy it in the right manner, yes. Okay. And so just to kind of, I, this might be a question
0: that planners would be asking. Um, I see uh, kind of QR codes at check in really being the kind of expectation of people now, you know, through the pandemic mm-hmm. we sort of became used to this idea of contactless and that seems quite efficient as well. What do you mm-hmm. think are the are the big advantages to a facial recognition system
1: other than how you know impressive it is in in some ways? So one is the experience, and the experience cannot be understated. But beyond that, what we saw at IBC, and we have this on video, that while people were still looking for the QR cure- code on their phone, they had already been recognized by their face, and the bus was already printed. So the scanning process itself, it it is about the same, but the human element of finding the QR code or my phone flipped or the lighting was not good to my phone and I have to adjust the lighting, the illumination. All of these things are what are creating the slowdowns and less than a nice and polished experience for people. The other element can be security because you can transfer a QR code. It is a bit harder to transfer a face so at least at the point of checking you don't have to do it everywhere around the the venue but at least at the point of checking it does give you this added level of security
0: i think those are two excellent points and i can see a situation where you can scan multiple people right so you could have multiple people coming in and and sort of badges being printed out in multiple locations or multiple badges being printed out right so it doesn't even have to be sort of an individual one, you know,
1: collecting, et cetera. We do recommend it uh, for privacy reasons to avoid mixing badges and so forth. So we do recommend one by one. But the very interesting thing about flow of people, because we have studied this quite a bit, whether it is the checking process, whether this is you know entering the trade floor where, where you have people scanning, stopping you and scanning you, or breakout sessions. Uh, it 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 grows, bottlenecks grow and happen exponentially. So, if you think about driving on the highway, and sometimes you come to a halt, and you stop, and then you move inch by inch for a while, and then it opens up, there was no accident, there was nothing, it was just a very, very big bottleneck. So, the moment you have even five or ten percent more, uh, you know, cars or people trying to go through the same point of congestion, it creates a huge bottleneck and lines are created and so forth. So, if you can speed up the throughput you can increase the throughput even by a little bit it makes a massive difference in avoiding this congestion of point in you know uh checking at breakout sessions and so forth fascinating and that's
0: really a great example of what you were talking before how when you develop one technology there's other advantages and sort of surrounding conversations that actually become clearer in some ways yeah yeah absolutely so and How we evolved. I think the next step is how we we evolved. That was my next question. Tell us. You you made this pivot. I guess you you identified there was a a challenge in terms of the really uh, making sure people understood the security and the kind of, you know, the way you protected people's identity. But you pivoted away from that in some ways. Was that a pandemic
1: thing or was that already pre-pandemic? So that's something that we were planning to do before the pandemic, and I don't know, uh, Miguel, if you remember, but we met at Go West uh, in Edmonton, Canada, where we had deployed the first version of technology. It was, I think, January of 2020, and we had done other deployments at the time, you know, with the UK Treasury and Live Group and, and a few others, because we, on one hand, we, we understood the challenge of educating the market. But on the other hand, we also saw the opportunity because we were at a pretty big event with 18,000 people using our technology for checking with face recognition. And what we saw was that they had spent a pretty substantial amount of money, a big investment in RFID tracking. Uh, in order to be able to count the number of people in each ballroom and get a good idea of how people behave in the space, where they go, where they stop, where they don't go, all of these questions that organizers usually need to know to improve it better, to improve the the event experience, and they were complaining about how much money they spent and how poorly it was functioning, and then we started talking with other uh, clients, event organizers in our network, providers. And everybody was saying the same thing. It is great when, it's work, when it works, but it doesn't really work. You have to make a massive investment. You have to run cables. You have to bring you know, the antennas. You have to assign tags. Sometimes the printer will be misconfigured and all the tags are off and you're going to miss a lot of data. So there were a lot of challenges. It's not that the technology doesn't work. It is that events are messy. Uh, a lot of the time everything is built the few hours before the show opens and uh, i think everybody who's been at an event they know what, uh, what i mean with that everything gets you know the vacuums come out one or two hours before the show floor opens everything's done very very in a very very short amount of time so it's very very easy to misconfigure a complicated system or something to go wrong and this is where we said wait we can just put a camera inside the ballroom and capture dozens of faces, hundreds of faces with a single camera. So this can give you a very good idea of real-time capacity without the complexity of having cables, of having to assign tags and so forth. And then started evolving and you know what, we can put it at at a booth to help an exhibitor understand how many impressions am I getting on one show versus the other? What is the quality of the traffic and the conversations I'm having? Are people, is my booth design effective to make people stop and look or not? When they stop and they come inside, and my sales team brings them inside and we start the conversation, uh, are they having a positive experience or not? We have two different activations in the demo. Which one had the most attention? How long did people stay in front? How they were feeling when they were interacting with the demo. So all of these questions we realize we can start answering and addressing more and more effectively with the technology in a very simple manner, uh, in a way that it can, on one hand, protect privacy. You can do it entirely anonymously. On the other hand, you can do it with a very, very easy setup, and we'll get to that. And the third thing, we never had the ability to track sentiment. And if people are having a good experience in real-time, uh, no less, and over time, you know, with a survey, you get a lot of qualitative input, which is very helpful, but the reality is many people do not answer the, the the surveys or they answer it as a point in time, or they don't remember. So you do want an additional source of information to validate what you are seeing. And that's what we do to a great extent. That is
0: fascinating. So I wanted to, um make sure I understood a couple of points there. So one I thought you said was really interesting was that events are are complicated because they're kind of last minute or a lot of the setup is last minute. So whilst something like RFID badges works very well for accessing an office building, for example, which is a very static deployment, right? You make new badges, but the machines are in the same place. You check in. For something like events, that isn't always as linear, right? Or those machines are installed very last minute. And so it isn't quite as efficient or is kind of um doesn't always work as well, right? That's kind of what you're saying.
1: Exactly right. And, and you know there are other tracking technologies, Wi-Fi tracking, BLE, and they have their own set of limitations. So nowadays most of the manufacturers for for, for phones, Apple, Android, they, they are rotating the MAC address on the phones. They are spoofing. So one device might broadcast five different MAC addresses. So it is very, very hard to get good data from that. Uh, BLE, we know that a lot of people, they have their Bluetooth off. Uh, I'm turning it off all the time, or you might need an app. So the, there are limitations with every technology, by the way, including ours. Nothing is it, perfect. So it, it really depends on what points you want to hit the most, and usually the convenience of installation, the flexibility of being able to you know, slice and dice the data after the fact It it is very very important. The ability to configure uh, the system remotely is also vastly important because you know things. Somebody somebody walks and pushes a camera, or or they pull a cable. We we had cases that you know we had 40, 50 sensors installed in in in, in an event, and somebody wanted to charge their phone. They just they just pull the plug (laughs) and they just try to charge their phone. You need to have a way to be able to detect that in real time and go and fix it, or you know adjust adjust the range of the sensor, how far away it's looking, and all of these things. So it is very very important in events. So that's the first part, and the second part. Whenever you have RFID with the antennas, the thrust, and so forth, a lot of the time you need to run internet lines. Uh, you have to run more cabling for power, which is very expensive. And again, if you need to make any last-minute changes, that it always happens on the event design, it is almost impossible to do uh, with, you know, a lot of conviction.
0: Another part of what you were saying, um, you started off by saying, hey, our sensors, and when you say sensors, you're talking about cameras for lay people, right? Because your system is based on kind of quite powerful cameras that then have hardware and software that kind of
1: analyzes visual image. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, I, I want to add a little bit of context to that. So what we realized very early in the events industry was that the internet provided at venues, it's 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 not good, just to put it politely. It, it is very hard because, you know, you have so many thousands of people. It is very, very hard to support everyone reliably uh, over Wi-Fi with all the signals. So streaming the video to the cloud, it is just very, very hard, especially if you have 10, 20, 40 devices and you use 4K resolution. We were talking about terabytes upon terabytes of data. That's the first challenge and limitation. The second limitation is cost, that it becomes very expensive very quickly to process video in the cloud. And last but not least, transmitting video from premises to the cloud, it's a no-no in terms of privacy and security. You are transmitting and storing personally identifiable information. This always makes everyone uneasy and, and rightfully so, and with very good reason. So what we did instead, and I'm showing this to Miguel because we're on video, but for those on podcasts, I will ask you to use your imagination. So we created a hardware device and we built this during the pandemic. So we took advantage of the pandemic to build this. And so so is this looking, this. looking, this is a small black
0: box. Looks kind of similar to a, a slightly smaller version than a Mac mini. Probably a little bit smaller, a little bit like a size of a modem, like a small modem, Is that? and that has a camera in it and has a number of things, but tell me more about what, what's
1: in there. It, it doesn't have a camera in it, and most people compare it with an Apple TV uh, uh, as a comparison. Yeah, that's probably uh, yeah, a bit, yeah, that's probably a better size, <laughs> so I have a Mac Mini
0: in front of me, so I was like, that looks about the same. Yeah, that makes
1: sense. So what it does, it is like a mini computer. So you were very, very close with your original comment, Miguel. So we have about six cores of CPU power. We have hundreds, almost 400 GPU cores. So in simple terms, what it means, you can attach any camera to it and we can analyze the video on premise. You don't have to send or store any video. And the very cool thing is that when you connect, you can use a regular web camera. Uh, we usually recommend two or 4K cameras, but you just plug in a USB cable, you plug in the power and it works. There's no other, nothing else you need to configure or do. And everybody can take a web camera, plug it to a USB port and take a power supply and plug it in. So in, in many cases, our installation time is five minutes per sensor, which is crazy, crazy quick. And when we do teardown, it's two minutes per sensor. And each device can scan a face uh, with a small webcams up to 30, 35 feet away from the camera at 90 degree angle. The theoretical limit of the device is analyzing up to 500 faces at the same time on the device. And in most cases, you are much, much slower because people have their distances, uh, their occlusions and so forth, but it is very, very powerful. And the way it works, the device, the hardware component, is looking at what the sensor is looking and extracts the metadata. The device does not capture any video, it does not store it, it does not transmit it. So it's looking at what the sensor is looking and instantly converts it into metadata. So we do not identify who is a person, we do not extract a unique identifier, but instead we see we're looking at 50 faces, some are women, some are men, some the system is not sure about. Some they are young, some they are older, some the system is not sure about because it has a threshold that it has to be very confident, confident in the prediction to in order to classify uh, some impressions into specific demographic groups. But then we can also look the expected dwell time as long as you stay in front of the camera. It doesn't work between cameras because, again, we do not follow people around from their face. That would be face recognition. We don't do that. Uh, instead, we're looking at, you know, how long did you stay in the field of view based on your position? Uh, so the positioning how...
0: of the devices is very important, right? So you're not
1: overlapping or you can do specific things with specific devices. So so it, it, overlap is not a big issue because, uh, as I mentioned previously, but let me make it more clear now, is that you can filter the data after the fact. This means that, you know, you say, I only wanted to have a report for people within five feet from the camera 10 feet 20 feet so you can you can change that after the fact which makes it very very easy to install for that reason because you just install it and then you just go on the system you you select your settings and and it works in this manner it makes it very very scalable in in this in this aspect
0: if you're doing something like counting you know let's say you have a big trade show hall and you want to understand how many people are in there right now and you have multiple mm -hmm. devices how does it figure out
1: what the accurate number is. Mm -hmm. We do not do head counts, just to be very clear, at least not from faces. We do not do head counts from faces Uh, because it is very easy to be off. And we want that when we put software out there, it is very accurate. We do take pride in being the leader and the best company in AI and computer vision uh, in, in in our segment and use cases. So that's why we don't do that. But what you can tell is the following. To booths in the front get more traffic than booths in the back. To uh, booths near a theater or an activation get some of the traffic, and even more than that, is the traffic the quality of the traffic better or or not as good? Because you can tell, are people stopping at the booths? Are they engaging in the conversations? How are they feeling? Uh, so we have done multiple deployments, and what we see usually, I, let me just share some statistics. I think that will be very. Nice for people to to learn is that usually booths and in the front and when people enter the trade floor, they're more often than not in better mood than when they start going towards the back and so forth. So they have a little bit more positive energy. They're a little bit more excited. And as they start walking and having conversations and they get a little bit tired, the energy starts to drop down. We have done many, many trade shows where the assumption is that booths in the front and center will get the most traffic. But if you look at the actual conversations happening, the leads collected, uh, the number of visitors, you might get a very, very good performance on the back. So, if you're an organizer and you were giving giving discounts, maybe you shouldn't. And if you're an exhibitor and you're not getting the results, maybe you should look at the booth design. And this is this is one of the very cool things where we have worked with uh, with exhibitors, and in some of the big success stories, we have been able to give up to 294% increase in demos offered with the same booth size. So tripling the number of demos offered with the same booth is a massive, massive success. And just to clarify, it was not just our technology. It is a combination of the data, the on-site manager that is observing what is happening to validate everything. And then you make some changes and you iterate but these are some very, very real results you can get by using the technology and analyzing the behavior of people. Fascinating. So you
0: talk that it, you, know, you get metadata and it's not visual data. Uh, forgive me, but it's quite hard to understand that, right? So can you give yes. us an example of what that metadata looks like? I mean, I imagine it's a big spreadsheet, but what can you kind of see in that?
1: Or what are the key things that you're seeing in this metadata that comes through? I love the question and a prominent figure in the events industry was explaining our technology and they were saying, uh, we evaluated many technologies uh, for uh, behavioral mapping, We Genus came on top and one of the reasons why we chose Genus was because of the privacy uh, safeguards they have been built in. And it's irony because we're using cameras to protect privacy, <laughs> but the system works in a way that actually accomplishes that. So the only data, the only data that is hitting our servers is there was one impression at this time. It stayed this long in front of the camera, and these are the predictions around their experience and their satisfaction and and dwell time. So you just have a very long, a very long spreadsheet with one impression, one impression, one impression, one impression, one impression, and essentially this is being aggregated to to a great extent. So you say you know between nine and ten. I saw this many faces. Between 10 and 10:30, I saw this many faces. And this is how the, the dynamic and the composition and the behavior of the audience changed in this time frame. And uh we have another mode which is more suited for sessions, you know, for speaker sessions, breakout sessions, general sessions, keynotes. And this is where you can start seeing on the whole audience, on the audience as a whole, you know. Um, is sentiment going up for a certain speaker or certain topics within the speaker's presentation. Maybe one presenter is losing a part of the audience and they need to adjust their presentation moving forward. Maybe there are certain activations or certain activities, I'm sorry, you can do before or after specific segments to bring back the energy and the openness in, in, in the audience. So there, there are many, many ways to take this information, but the important thing is that there's no way to take what is in our servers and identify the individual.
0: Yep, totally clear. So you have n- numbers, um, gender, or if you can recognize it, um, and you have emotions, right? Those are kind of the three things that you're capturing essentially. And then, A- from- and well, time. And, and well, well time. time. and well, time. Yeah. So that's kind of the numbers, I guess, in some ways, or at least the, I guess the distance from that that sensor.
1: Yeah. Um, exactly.
0: And then the important thing is that you take other information, like there was a presentation going on, or this is a booth or whatever, and then you can, I guess, cross reference it in some ways. And that's where you can really develop event intelligence and improve your booth design or improve the trade show element or something like that. That's really the the crux of deriving
1: value from this technology. Exactly right. And one of the metrics we have introduced is called stop rate, where we can determine what was the percentage of people stopping in front of a point of interest. And in the exhibition space, this works with adaptive content, sponsorships, and so forth. But what we have seen in the trade floor in particular is that for every 1% increase in the stop rate, the exhibitor will get another 5% leads over what they are doing. These are averages, but we have seen it very consistently. To work like that across events. The more you can get people to stop in front of your booth, the more likely you'll have a very big increase in the number of leads captured. And to break it down, because it, it took us by surprise why this is happening, if you're an, an exhibitor and you get 100 leads per event and you have 1,000 people walking in front of you, in front of the booth, making 1% increase in the stop rate means another 10 people are going to stop. If you get five of them in and you engage them, you go from 100 leads to 105. So 1% increase in the stop rate, 5% increase in how many leads you are capturing.
0: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And in many ways, it's like landing page optimization. But for a physical landing page, which is a trade show or a trade show booth,
1: that's a very good way of putting it, and that's what we are doing. Uh, we are replicating essentially all the analytics you have for digital digital marketing in the actual physical spaces, and this has been a gap in the market because everybody knows that it works, mm-hmm. uh, that under, below-the-line marketing works. They just don't know how well it works and what is the true ROI. Yep. Uh, so everybody's doing it, but they don't know how well it works, and right now we're giving them tools to improve this uh, measurement of ROI. And are you able to do
0: this in in real time or is 100% yes. yes okay so you could so, technically have a booth and say hey let's try it a different setup tomorrow
1: and then hey this worked better let's keep it like this or something like that you could uh where we see this happening the most is on on, on speaker sessions uh where you have a very important event and a speaker setting everybody off so we have seen organizers taking the speaker down a little bit earlier than expected and doing something to bring up the energy. Usually, we do not recommend making changes on a booth uh, day-to-day. We're doing it event-to-event to give time to everyone to discuss the data, analyze what happened, and make the appropriate changes. Uh, the one thing I want to, to point out is about our device is that in some ways, some people have compared it to Tesla in the sense that we can update the software remotely. So right now, the the mode we started with was analyzing faces. The second mode we we are adding is analyzing the QR code in badges. So if you want to use it for CU credits, uh, if you want to use it for lead retrieval, for access control, for uh, understanding the the journey of attendees throughout the venue, that's something we can do. And it works in a very similar way, like your phone when you're scanning a badge, the difference is that we can capture badges way, way further away. We can get about six feet, or if you use even better cameras, even further away. And this creates an alternative to NFC, RFID, BLE, that it is way more cost effective. The opt-in, opt-out process is much easier. And everybody can print a QR code on a badge. It works with all QR codes. Uh so the you know the adoption threshold is very, very low, very, very easy. And is that you're actively implementing that, or is that still kind of being developed? Yes, sir. It is being actively implemented. Uh, very, very successfully so. Uh, so the team has done a very, very good job. The, the only, you know, not caveats, the only things that one has to be careful about, and we're seeing it more and more, is that we always recommend the QR code to have only the attendee ID in it. A lot of registration companies, they're putting the first name, the last name, the email address, the title, everything, which is an unnecessary risk. We have seen backlash being created in some very popular and big name events from attendees because they could, anybody could scan anybody's badge and get their contact information. And that's not very secure or safe. And it's unneeded because if you are the registration company and you have the attendee ID, you can cross-reference everything. You don't need to put all the information in your code. I don't know if you have ever been, you know, well, you have been, but you have noticed that how scan it is, how hard it is to scan with lead retrieval apps people's badges. Part of the reason is because it has so much information packed into it, and it doesn't need to. So, if you did use the information in the QR code, it makes the experience better for the exhibitor, the attendee, and it's better from a privacy and security point of view. So, we, we are making a push towards that, and I will call the event organizers to to. To reach out or have a conversation, to implement it in this way, the events is leading how people are thinking about privacy security. Uh, so it is a very good place to get started with that.
0: And what about um, like lead scanning at boots? Is that something that you could or you do use your technology for?
1: Well, we didn't plan on getting on this on this uh, segment because we don't want to step on anybody's toes. Uh, to be very frank, but. What we are seeing, and the funny thing is we're seeing lead retrieval companies asking to use our technology at the trade at the source they're exhibiting as an additional self-service station. So what you can do, you have a tabletop or a floor stand with a small tablet, and as a person approaches, they get scanned, the, the screen turns green to, to let them know they have been scanned, and they can opt in to get uh, communications from the exhibitor. And this does not replace the literal apps because it will not keep notes about the interaction. It will not keep this information. But I think every exhibitor knows that there's some point where, where, when the booth is so packed that you have not been able to scan everybody or there's a person that really doesn't want to talk to anyone, but they are more comfortable doing the self-service scan and registering their interest. So having one or two stations like that additional to the actual lead retrieval system can give you a good chunk of extra leads. And when the average cost per lead is maybe $100, $300, depending on how you you calculate it, getting 10 more of those is a very, very good ROI on on, on your investment. So that is something that is being used, but even without the lead retrieval portion, you, you, you have different activations. You, you want to measure the, the unique number of visitors to these activations, the demos. How long, how long did they stay? And that's information that with an automated bad scanning system that works at about five, six feet away, we can tell you the first and the last scan and if, the, if there was a repeat scan. So that you're able to tell you know, which demos were more successful with which job titles and so forth.
0: And you can also use it for, I guess, like document download or something like that if you want to make it more
1: self-service, right? So you have various options and people kind of select whatever they want. Uh, sky's the limit because, uh, let me take it one step further, and that's something we're doing with a very, very big organizer uh, in April and a few others. So what you can do, our device has an HDMI port. You can take any digital display, you can connect it to our device. And then you can change the content depending on either the demographic profile or the QR code or the person in front of it. And that's the next level of personalization and experience.
0: I like it. That's uh, yeah, looking to the future. So wanting to, to kind of wrap up, I wanted to just get your idea. Are there any challenges that you see with the um, meetings industry that um, I guess, impact you in some ways and, and you'd probably want to find solutions to. Um, I guess I'm talking bigger picture if you see any bigger
1: challenges in the industry that you'd like to overcome in some way. Uh, I wouldn't say challenges. I would say characteristics. Uh, I see some characteristics. And event organizers, they are by nature risk adverse. And with good reason, because you know on events, you have one sort of opportunity to make it work or it doesn't work. So this has created some you know, uh, skepticism on technology in general because there were lots of solutions that they were not up to par. And, and this is where the event organizers that have been a little bit defensive in any type of technology. The pandemic did change that quite a bit. And, and this is where we say that this is why you have to vet your vendors really, really well. And I, I, I don't know if this is possible, but... A very very good review of of software or some certifications or standards I think would be very helpful for the audience to help buyers make good decisions. Uh, right now, what you see is that a lot of the agencies or you know companies like Freeman or GS or or whatever they are playing a little bit of this consultative uh, role of they saying okay we have tested this technology it works that's how how and why you have to implement it. But I think having some more global and standard uh, certificates, standards, uh, whatever, would be helpful uh, to the industry. The challenge is that there are so many tools, so many services, it's it's a little bit hard to do. Uh, But that's the one thing I I would say. Uh, On the other hand, events is a very small industry and the word of mouth moves very quickly. We we supported the PCMA Convening Leaders Conference uh, a, a few weeks ago. And uh, I, I hope they will not get into trouble, but they said, hey, Panos, you told us, told us it was going to work your technology. We were we, we didn't know, so we we, pl- we planned for a couple of fallback options, but it worked perfectly. And, and you know what? they are going to tell other organizers and they're going to use it in other events. And and, and that's how, and, and IMEX the same thing. We work with IMEX as well, with Event Tech Live. And, and this is where the industry plays a very, and the community plays a very big role in being able to promote the solutions that do work well, and they work ethically uh, as well.
0: Well, thank you for taking us through this. And I think it's uh, it's a good message. And uh, it's, it's fascinating technology. But I have to admit, even for myself, and I think myself as someone who understands event technology quite well, it's not the easiest thing to suddenly kind of flick a switch and kind of make it understand it right so it's good to kind of go through and and kind of figure out the the uses and how to deploy it so um panos thank you so much for for joining us today good to have you with us and thank you for for being a sponsor of the podcast as well we do appreciate that i wanted to get um the last question for you is really your recommendation on somebody else who might be interesting to um to interview on the podcast so we could have a, a next guest
1: uh, so that's challenging because every name I will throw to you, most likely you have already spoken with them. <laughs> uh, so uh, I will do the the you know seamless plug. I think uh, from all the people that you could have speaking with, Art Borrego from our team would be interesting, and, and let me explain why. So Art, he was the co-founder and CEO of Alliance Tech, that introduced RFID tracking in I think 2004. Uh, it was quite a while ago, and they were acquired by Cvent, and they were able to expand the use of the te- technology quite significantly. So Art joined our team because he believes that what we do is going to be the next level uh, of, of RFID, So because you can get a lot of the behavioral uh, tracking and understanding of people. So I think he could be a very interesting person to speak with because he has lots of experience in events. Uh, He's the person behind a lot of the activations, a lot of big deployments that nobody really knows because he's the most uh, nice, humble, uh, no ego person that you will ever meet. So that could be a good uh, person to speak with.
0: I appreciate it. Self-serving works and he sounds super interesting. So it'd be a pleasure to have him on the podcast at some point. Panos, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for taking us through this and um, good luck with everything. We hope to hear lots of success stories very soon. Thank you for having me.
1: I hope so too.